Well, thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Uh, I don't actually have anything scripted out, but what I want to do is to handle the challenge that's given to uh, those of us who hold to something like Reformed theology, uh, Reformed soteriology, or Calvinism, or something along those lines, um, that, that somehow we're not taking the text at face value, or we're having having to make these strange, um, you know, exegetical maneuvers, or we're making up these, you know, differences and concepts that aren't really there, and we're distinguishing between two wills, and, and, all, and all that kind of stuff. And I want to just go to um, a common passage. This, you know, is the, is the cage stage Calvinist passage. I'm going to look at Romans 9. And I just want to read through it with very with only you know a couple comments here and there, and and to show in order for something like provisionism, uh, or or evangelical Arminianism, I'm largely not thinking here of reformed or historic Arminianism, um, but this would be something along the lines of um, of uh, evangelical Arminianism and and provisionism and the like. Um, and, and I'm going to go through and say, okay, I mean, this is this is the assumption that they that they make of the text, and this is the assumption that Calvinist makes of the text, and which one of them is actually being faithful to what um, what the text just says on a on a superficial, you know, not superficial in the bad way, but a surface level reading. What just what is the plain meaning without a lot of um, you know exegetical hoops to jump through? And 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 by the way. I, I'm not saying that exegetical hoops are necessarily bad. Sometimes they're very important, um, and, and there are contextual reasons why we might read something in the light of another passage or something like that. So I'm not saying that this is a proof that Calvinism uh, or Reformed Sorteriology or, or a handling of this chapter um, that, that, that somehow proves that those are true or the best. I'm just going to be trying to show that the objection that somehow we're doing, you know, weird, crazy philosophizing of the text just doesn't hold water. All right, so I want to start back with uh, actually the end of chapter 8, about the last half of chapter 8. And I'm going to be doing this for a reason because this is the context I want to get a running start going into the context uh, for what, what we're dealing with here. So starting in verse 26, and I'm going to be reading from uh, the ESV, starting in verse 26, it says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, really quickly, who is the us? Paul is clearly speaking to Christians. He's speaking to his audience who he's writing to in Rome. He's speaking to Christians. He's not talking about some special super powerful, you know, super apostles. He's not talking about just the apostles. He's not talking about Old Testament saints, right? We, we all agree that this is dealing with uh, Christians uh, more, more generally. While he's writing to the Christians in Rome, obviously this is not something that's true only of Christians in Rome. This is something for all Christians. So likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Again, this is promises to all Christians. And he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Again, that's a universal promise to all Christians. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. Now, here at this point, notice that notice that in the passage I didn't say, oh, oh, by the way, switching just to talk about Old Testament saints. 
or switching just to talk about apostles, right? There's nothing in that context that goes towards that. Just remember that, right? So just just remember, there, there's no subject change here in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Brothers, Okay, again, no mention of Old Testament saints, no mention of just the apostles, right? This isn't Old Testament Jews, right? This is so Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is Christ among his church, right? And this is dealing with those whom he foreknew. If this is general, just think about that. If that's general foreknowledge of all humanity, well, then what follows? All those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, if God foreknew all humanity, did he predestine all humanity to be conformed? No, I mean, this is a special covenantal. This is what the Old Testament calls hesed. This is his covenant love, right? So he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, that is that group that he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, he also called. Well, is that the gospel call? Is that the call to all humanity? Well, we've already seen that that's not all humanity because otherwise you'd be a universalist. This foreknow is his covenant, his special love that he sets on those whom he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. All those whom he foreknew, he predestined. All those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. Again, this is, this is dealing with the same group of people as you go from link to link. Those whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified. So if this is dealing with the gospel call, that would mean that all those who were called, he also justified. Well, then you'd have to be a universalist. Well, that can't be the case, right? So we're just going on the plain meaning of what these things says. Those whom he predestined, all those he predestined, he called. And all those that he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Right? We're just dealing with the basic, uh, the basic grammar of this passage. We don't have to invent anything special. We don't have to go into, oh, well, there's this, th- this, this is really dealing with Old Testament saints, and this is dealing with apostles, and, and really this is the calling of the apostles in the gospel, and none of that. We don't have to do any of that, right? I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over um, 31 to 38, not because it's not important, but really it's the, it's the application that, it, you know, if, if you're in Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of, of Christ that's in, uh, the, the, the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, right? This is an application uh, that Paul is making from, from the fact that the, the promise of God, that all those whom he foreknew, he predestined, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified. And so there's, there's hope and there's promise in that, that, that not even the, the one who tries to condemn us, right? You can't condemn us because Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is the right hand of God, right? He's, he's showing that Christ is, is, the, is the supreme power. And so there's nothing that can undo that, Right? That's how he gets to this. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Right? Amen. That's a beautiful hope. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Right? Well, guess what? Are you in creation? 
right? So that that common argument, well, nothing can take you away, but but you can lose it. You can give it up. You can separate yourself. Well, are you in all of creation? Does <laughs> does does all mean all at that point? Uh, so, <clears throat> okay, but from that, this is this is I, I you know I'm not trying to go too far into that. From that, Paul then moves into Romans nine, right? And the obvious question here that comes up is what you're saying is that God, if, if God's done all these things, right, and God's going to keep it. What about the Israelites, right? Didn't God promise to the Israelites? Didn't he promise good to the Israelites? But they don't seem to be believing. So that's how Paul goes into this. So Romans 9, we're going to go through, I'm going to go through this. I'm not going to, I'm not going to skip anything. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Here he's talking about the Jews. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But... Here's the big, here's, here's his driving his point home. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, right? So, so how, how can it be that Israelites aren't, aren't believing and they're falling away and they're, and they're not believing in Christ and they're, and they're going to be damned? How can that be the case if, if, the, if the adoption comes, you know, from the, the seed of Israel, if, it, you know, if the glory comes from Israel, the covenant comes from Israel, the law comes from Israel, worship and promises and the patriarchs and, and all of that comes to us in Christ from Israel, how is it that, that so much of Israel is not believing, right? It ha- has God's word failed? He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That is, the covenant community is not by corporate <laughs> is not a corporate calling, election. There are those who are part of the corporation who are not part of the corporation, right? Um, Though Isaac shall your offspring name. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Right? Notice here, we haven't gotten to the prophecy yet. We haven't gotten to the, to, to, to the, the, the Old Testament citation. Paul here is already establishing his argument. He's saying, look, look at the narrative. He's not using these as allegories for nations, nothing like that. He's saying, look at the narrative. Right? Look at the, the actual person, Sarah. Look at the actual person, Rebecca. Right? If, if, uh, if, if Jacob is just kind of the allegorical use for Israel and Esau is just the allegorical use uh, for, for the, the Edomites, right? And, and we're just talking about those nations. 
Well, I mean, who does Rebecca stand for then? Who does Sarah stand for then? Who does Isaac stand for then? Right? We're not dealing with allegory, and Paul is giving narration. This, this isn't from an Old Testament quote where he says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Right? Here, Paul is interpreting the historical account of Rebecca right? With Rebecca and Isaac about Jacob and Esau. He's saying, look, before the men, not the nations that they, were, they would later, you know, be, be the, 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 the progenitors of, right? The men, <laughs> Jacob and Esau, before, you know, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Why? In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That is not because of what the people do, but because of God who calls. That's why Rebecca was told, she was told, starting again, Paul picks up in verse 12, that's what she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now Paul goes to the, the, the prophet. Now God goes to the Old Testament citation and says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, the, 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 the one who wants to hold the corporate view is going to say, oh, well, that's an Old Testament citation. And because in that citation, Jacob stands for uh, Israel and Esau stands for Edom, then really Paul is talking about those nations corporately. Right? That's just not what the text says. Right, he he is talking specifically about the and he actually says conceive children by one man our forefather Isaac again dealing with their birth before they had been born and 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 before they had had done nothing either good or bad and he tells us again the reason for God's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of Him who calls right and so when he gives the Old Testament citation he's giving it as a theme, an anti-type, and a type and an anti-type, right? This is, this is the same type of use of Hosea that Matthew uses when he says, out of Israel will I call my son, right? Well, son in Hosea is referring to Israel, calling Israel out of Egypt. And by the way, it's, a, it's, a, <clears throat> it's not even a prophecy. It's a past uh, historical statement, right? Used for a future promise. So, so even when Hosea is using it, he's using it dealing with real historical individuals as types of a future eschatological fulfillment. Paul is doing the same thing here that Matthew's doing, right? So, so, we don't have to look at this and be like, oh, well, if you go to the Old Testament citation, well, that's dealing with, uh, you know, it's using these names, but it really it's standing in for the nations. And so if we bring that back into Paul, then, then really he's talking about nations. And then, if we, and then if we reverse engineer that backwards through the last three or four verses that seem to be talking about individuals, it's not actually talking about individuals. I mean, it is talking about an individuals when it's talking about Sarah and, and Rebecca and Isaac. But when it's talking about Jacob and Esau, even though it doesn't say otherwise, it's talking about nations, right? You have to do all these gymnastics. The, the reform reading doesn't have to do that, right? The reform reading is it's talking about individuals, talking about the historical setting. And so that's what it's talking about. There's none of this shenanigans, right? It's just simple and straightforward. And pa Paul continues, what shall we say then, right? Is there injustice on God's part, right? No, notice that this is the objection that, that the Calvinist gets, right? By the way, the, nowhere does he say, oh, to, to my unbelieving Jewish interlocutors, 
right? Because that, that, that's how some, some provisionists and some evangelical Arminians want to cast this that, this, that this is really an unbelieving Jewish response as the question, right? Notice none of that is in here, by the way. None of that has been the interlocutor of any of the previous questions that have come up in Romans. We don't, we don't look at the, the other questions uh, that, that rise up in chapter 3 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. We don't, we don't look at those and say, oh, well, those, those are unbelieving Jewish Jews as the interlocutor. No, I mean, we, Paul's just anticipating a, a possible philosophical objection that comes up from his Christian audience that he's writing to, right? Notice, and, and notice the objection is the exact objection that Reformed and Calvinists get when we say, Exactly what Paul just did. That though people are not yet born and have done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election not, might continue, not because of what people do, but because of God who calls, right? The, and the outcome follows. And they say, oh, but, but that's unjust on God's part, right? That's the objection we get. Notice Paul anticipates the objection of his interlocutor, and it's exactly the objection that the Reformed get. So he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Right? That is up to God. He'll, he'll have mercy on whom he wants, and he'll have compassion on whom he wants. So then it depends not on human will. It depends not on human will. <laughs> Can it get any more clear? It depends not on what you choose. Your choice isn't what forces God to act. He's not compelled to act towards you in a certain way based on what you will. So then it depends not on the human will or exertion, right? We don't have to go through these somersaults of, oh, well, he means, he means will in the sense of like what you will to try to work, to do something. No, I mean, we don't have to make these caveats. It depends not on human's will. Great. We don't deny that you have free will. We deny that you have libertarian incompatibilistic free will, but we don't... We don't deny people have free will. We just say that the human will isn't, isn't forcing God to act a certain way, right? Which is what Paul's saying. It's not unjust for God to say whom he's going to have mercy and compassion. And it's based on his, his, his purpose of election, right? Not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. Notice God is the one raising him up. God is the causal condition that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed through all the earth. Here he's, why is he raising Pharaoh up to be judged and condemned? For his own display of power that his name might be great and proclaimed on the earth. That is for his own glory. That's again, the reformed answer. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Notice those are, those are directly analogous statements. That, 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 that's a couplet, right? God's going to have mercy on whomever he wills. It's not based on human will or exertion. He already said that in 16. It's not, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, right? That, that's just, he's restating that in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills right? Not based on will or exertion. And he hardens whomever he wills. Again, th those, are, those, are, those are directly pair. That's a direct pair, right? He has mercy and he hardens whomever he wills, not based on human will or exertion, right? No, what's, what's the normal objection when a Calvinist says this? 
Well, in that case, God's to blame and humans don't have moral responsibility anymore, right? That's the normal response. How, how can he still find us at fault for who can resist his will? <laughs> Which is the objection that comes. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's the exact objection. Again, notice I'm not playing, I don't have to go, you know, redefine concepts. I don't have to split concepts. I'm not trying to <clears throat> come up with hermeneutical principles. I don't have to try to say, well, that, you know, this is an unbelieving Jewish response, which by the way, doesn't make any sense because he just talked about Pharaoh being raised up. And, and so he's going to have mercy on whom he has mercy and he's going to harden whomever he hardens. And he's talking about Pharaoh, and he's talking about who he, whom he hardens is Pharaoh, right? No unbelieving Jew is going to say, wait a second, wait a Paul, hold on a minute. How can it be, how can, how is that fair? How, how is it, <clears throat> how is it that you judge Pharaoh for, for what he did? If, you know, it, it really, you know, Pharaoh hardened his heart first before you harden it, and it's just judicial hardening in response to his, right? Nowhere is that in here. And the Jews would never protest that way against God judging Pharaoh, right? This objection only makes sense if he's saying, right, that he finds fault even though Pharaoh couldn't resist his will because God is the one who determined to harden him, not based on his will or his own exertion, right? That's how, that's the only way this objection makes sense. And again, we don't have to make up unbelieving Jewish interlocutors and we don't have to make, you know, we don't have to go to all this, this, these kind of cartwheels through pastors. Just what, what does it say? So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Right? Well, that, that's the challenge. Well, well, it, well, if no one can resist his will, if he, har if he has mercy on whom he, mercies, or he has mercy and he hardens whomever he hardens and it's not based on, on our will and, it's, and, if it's, and if it's by his good purpose of election, so his good purpose of election might continue before they've done either good or bad, then how does he still find us at fault? How are we still guilty? Right, that, that's the normal objection the Reformed get and Paul's anticipating that as an objection and he doesn't come back and say, wait, 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 wait. You're misunderstanding me. I'm saying that Pharaoh hardened himself first and, and that God is just re responding to his action. That Paul, Paul doesn't say that. He's anticipating this as an objection to what he's actually said. He doesn't anticipate an interlocutor who's misunderstanding what he said, right? So then he continues, but who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? That is, his answer isn't, well, um, <clears throat> you know, we, God's really, he's really being fair. He really is giving us what, what, what we deserve because we choose it first. And really, he's just responding with, you know, with just penalties for our actions for, you know, no, he's responding, to the, he's responding to the question, why, why does God find someone at fault if they can't resist his will? If he made them that way, if he made Pharaoh just to raise him up, why does he still find fault? And he, Paul doubles down and he says, will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Think of how that's a response to what Paul has said. Paul, <laughs> Paul is saying that the molder has made them this way. 
He doesn't come back and say, no, 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 no. God, God didn't mold you that way. What are you talking about? God, God didn't mold you that way. God, God made you neutral and it's by your will that you choose one way or another. No, he comes back and he says, the, the problem is, isn't that God molded you that way. The problem is that you think you're an authority to tell God what to do. But who are you, a man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump? Right, again, same lump, humanity, right? Has, and, and by the way, uh, I, I did an episode, I wrote a paper and I did an episode, this is not an allusion to Jeremiah 18. This is clearly a citation of various passages in Isaiah. And in Isaiah, these are not, <laughs> these, are, these are not potter and clay being molded for function, for ministry, for purpose. This is being molded into certain natures, right? And we can see that this is this is from the from uh, he can, for, from the same lump of clay, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use, right? These are these are their natures. These are the purposes. This is why they are made. This is what they are, right? One one is a bedpan, and one is a Ming vase. Right? And, and they don't get to look at God and say, why have you made me like this? And, and, and the response isn't, well, I, I, I didn't make you into a bedpan. You, 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 made, you made yourself, you, you chose to do that. And, I, and really, this is just, this is just me you know, calling you for, you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking about your being. I'm talking about, uh, you know, this, this, is, this is calling you for, you know, ministerial purpose or something like that. Right? Why, why do we know, now, why do I know that? Right? Because Paul continues. He tells us the explanation. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Right? So out of the same lump, he's made two kinds of vessels, one for honorable use, that is one that are vessels of mercy, those vessels which are prepared to receive mercy and those vessels which are prepared for destruction. That is those who are prepared for dishonorable use. That's, that's, the, that's the analogy here. And he says, what, what if God, out of the same lump of clay, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And why does he make these vessels prepared for destruction? Well, I mean, we could go all the way back and say in order that God's purpose of election might continue, right? It's synonymous with what he says, but, but he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, right? It flat out says... Right? Again, we don't have to make all of these, these leaps and jumps around and trying to, oh, well, this, you know, it says this, but really, it, really it's talking about this, this other thing, right? No, I mean, we can just, the, the plain reading of this. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
And why did he do that? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even, whom, even us whom he has called, right? That is, that is the, 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 the Greek term behind there that says even us, right, is, is really namely us, right? Those vessels prepared for, beforehand for glory, namely us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Again, this calling is a specific calling. This is not a general call, right? Because otherwise that would be all people and you'd have to be a universalist, right? He's saying, look, remember, he's answering the question of has, has the promise to the Jews failed? And he's saying, no, it hasn't failed because this has been the purpose all along that, that God has been, <laughs> that God has fashioned a lump, you know, one lump of clay for honorable use and one for dishonorable use. And it's, it doesn't fall equally on the lines of Israel, that the, the, the vessel that's made for honorable use, the church, right, is, is, is those who are called from the Jews, not, not only Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And, it sh- and he shows from the passage uh, that, that he says from, from Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who are not beloved, I will call beloved. Right? And so so he, he's, he's trying to show that God's purpose of election has always been that way. It's, it's not this corporate thing that he's, that he's called this corporate body and whoever includes themselves is there. No, he's saying that God has always chosen. It's always been Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. It's always been for God's purpose that he might show his power and that his name might be proclaimed above all the earth, that he might display his wrath against the vessels uh, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. (laughs) Right? Again, I'm not trying to here argue that therefore Calvinism is true or Reformed theology is true. That's not the purpose of this, although I think that is demonstrably the case. My purpose here is is the simple fact that when someone tries to say that Calvinists have to jump through all these hoops and we have to make words mean not what they mean and, and all that kind of stuff, that... That, that we're not we're just not doing that that's just not the case and and in order for the corporate view to work in order for the provisionist view to work you have to, you have to do that they they're the ones that have to go through and they have to try to change the subject of who's talking they have to try to invent this identity for the interlocutor that isn't there and they have to try to come up with this reverse understanding of how he's citing this one old testament passage and then read that backwards through the verses before that despite paul specifically talking about the individual individual life and using a normal way of citing an Old Testament passage as a type, uh, anti-type or type resolution uh, that, that, that we see throughout the New Testament, right? We don't have to do any of those hoops <laughs> to understand this passage, right? So that, that objection just is not the case. It's, it's, like, it's like when we go to Ephesians 1, right? When you go to Ephesians 1, by the way, my friend Sean Cole um, on, on, on his show, Understanding Christianity, recently did a great episode, kind of doing similar to what I'm doing here uh, in Romans, although I think he was a little bit more uh, scripted out on, on some of the things he was talking about. But he went through Ephesians 1, just did a, a masterful job showing a bunch of the problems. But I do this all the time. And I, when, when I go to Ephesians 1, it's very, very similar. Right? We don't have to jump through all these hula hoops where, well, the verse doesn't actually mean this. And, and well, you know, grammatically, you know, we have to kind of change what the subject is of this and what the, the direct object is, right? We don't have to do any of that, right? 
We don't have to do this, oh, well, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians in verses 1 through 3, but in verse, in, in verse somewhere in verse 3 and 4, he's actually stopped talking to the Ephesians when he's using the third person uh, or when he's using the first person plural pronoun, us, for some reason, he's no longer talking to the Ephesians. Really, he's talking about the apostles. And then when you switch back in verse, I, I think they do 13, uh, in, in verse 13, he's now switching back to the, Ephes- to the Ephesians church, sort of, like, we don't have to do, there's no indicator of that in these passages. And we don't have to do that, right? The Reformed view doesn't have to do, we don't have to switch the, the you know, the audience and the subject and who's, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and who the pronoun, you know, because honestly, they divide it like in one verse of who the pronoun, like, like the same first person plural pronoun in, in half the verse means one group and then it means a completely different group in the, other, in the rest of the, like we don't have to do any of that, Right? So, so if you're reading through an example in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who had blessed us in Christ in heaven, in every spiritual, uh, uh, sorry, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? Paul's clearly talking to, the, to himself in the Ephesians. That's not just to super spiritual Christians. That's not just to the apostles, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who blessed us in Christ in the heavenly, blesses Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Right? They're gonna, oh, well, uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't choose us individually. What, what he chose was kind of this, he, cho- he chose a plan um, to, to, so that people would be conformed to the image uh, of Christ so that they would be blameless before him and that those people who freely choose to come in, well, they're the ones who are brought in to be blameless. But notice, again, it's not even as he chose that some would not be holy and blameless from before the foundation of the world and that we responded, right? No, no, no. The direct object of the choosing, even as he chose us. Now, he chose us in him, in Christ. Christ is the means of that choosing. But the means, that, that's, that's the means by which, that's the, that, you know, God, that's the glove that God used to pick us up because he chose us. Us is the direct object of the verb to choose. He chose us. It's not he chose holy and blameless in him, whoever you know chooses. Right? The, the plan is not the direct object of the verb. Right? So in order for the provisionist understanding, they have to say, okay, well, it says chose us, but really it doesn't mean he chose us. Right? We're, even though we're the direct object of the verb, we're not actually the direct object of the verb. Something else is the direct object of the verb. Right? And keep going. Uh, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What's the direct? So he predestined, that's the verb, Praorizo, he predestined us. We are the direct object. We are the things being predestined. Now, we're predestined for adoption, but it's not that God predestined this plan of adoption to those who include themselves, okay? The us is the direct object of the verb. We don't have to play, you know, the Reformed view doesn't have to play fast and loose with the grammar, right? And remember, 
Verses, I think it's three all the way through 14 is one long sentence in the Greek, right? That's important. Remember, we have these broken up into verses and with punctuation and all that kind of stuff because that would just be monstrously complicated. And it is monstrously complicated in the Greek, by the way, but it's one long sentence. So this whole, we're going to break up the subject and, and who the third person, all that kind of, without any indication whatsoever, is literally to say that Paul <laughs> uses these pronouns with different groups without ever telling us within the exact same sentence, right? And that, and that the direct objects of the verbs aren't actually the direct objects of the verbs. They're actually somehow the indirect objects of the verbs, or, or they, they, are the, they are the outcomes of the indirect objects of the direct <laughs> object of the, Right? That it just, it's just to throw grammar and syntax out the window, and the reform view doesn't have to do that, right? We don't have to do that, right? In, ver- in, verse, in verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, right? How, how have we obtained the inheritance? What's by by <laughs> by uh, you know the 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 parenthetical statement having been predestined according to the purpose of his will of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will right the, the, that parenthetical you can pull to the front that is in him having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the the, the counsel of his will we have obtained an inheritance that's how the parenthetical works. Right? So again, just going through these things, just go, going, going through these passages, we, you know, the reform view, we don't have to invent things and we don't have to invent you know, magical, you know, kind of unstated identities of these interlocutors. We don't have to say direct objects aren't actually direct objects. We don't have to use these weird usages of Old Testament passages in ways that we never would use anywhere else. Like, Ask yourself which one is doing more somersaults, and it's not the reform view. Again, that doesn't mean the reform view is true. It doesn't mean that it's the best treatment of the passage, right? Reform view could still be false, and these other views could still be true. All I want to do on this on this episode, although I think these are good reasons to think the reform view is true, because you don't have to go through all of these, you know, so many exegetical and hermeneutical and conceptual hoops to jump through. Right? I, I think there is a certain parsimony uh, to, to the reform view where it's far more simple and straightforward and, 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 and tied directly to the text itself, the plain meaning of the text. Right? I, I'm not here saying that therefore reformed, the reformed understanding of these passages is true, simply that the objection that they are just ignoring the text Right, that 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 reformed and Calvinist, we just ignore the text and we're just imposing theology on these texts and so on and so forth, is just blatantly wrong. Anyone who says that type of thing has just never read has just never read uh, any Calvinist uh, or or reformed exegesis of these passages. Right, they they they've just never read you know the 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 exegetical commentaries by people like Schreiner and Carson and Beale and Moo and Morris and so on and so forth, where you're dealing with some of the leading exegetes in the you know in the world dealing with these passages. Again, I'm not making appeal to, to authority. I'm not saying therefore it's true, but I'm saying if you're saying that these leading exegetes are just, you know, complete morons and they're completely ignoring the text and they're just doing eisegesis and all that kind of, I mean, 
You're, you're, you're just, you're, you're saying more about your own bias and your own motivated reasoning to try and deny a position that you disagree with than to actually engage with the view. All right. So thank you again for joining me. I hope many of you found this, this helpful and enjoyable and, uh, you know, albeit hopefully challenging for some of you. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out to me. You can email freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com, visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com, or come on by the group page on Facebook at freedthinker, uh, the freedthinker group page on Facebook and join the conversation there. You can also find me uh, on uh, on Twitter as well, although I'm not really there as much, and sometimes I just, <laughs> that one's just sometimes just more for fun. But you can join there as well. As always, if you enjoyed this, please consider becoming a, uh, a, uh, a patron uh, of the show. You can do that by either becoming a sponsor uh, click the become a sponsor link on the blog or you can find me on patreon again thank you so much for joining good night and god bless